Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Matt Johnson, and with me today is Don Peterson, a professor of history at Emory University, to talk about her new book, Indians in the Family, Adoption and the Politics of Antebellum Expansion. Don, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, why don't I start just with, uh, um, you know, what sparked your interest in this issue of adoption in the late 18th and early 19th century? Oh, gosh. Um, It was kind of a long and circuitous journey. So, I feel like I need to back up in terms of why I actually started graduate school. Um, I did graduate school in the fall of 2002. Um, I was living in New York uh, and uh, lost uh, someone very close to me in the World Trade Center. So that was part and parcel of wanting to go back to graduate school. And I was in my early 20s. Um, It was a major political awakening for me, um, seeing the blowback of U.S. imperialism uh, kind of really hitting home, so to speak. Um, and so I wanted to go back to graduate school to kind of understand the deep roots of U.S. empire and then also um, see the ways in which U.S. imperialism had always revolved around this um, this intersection of gender, race, sexuality, and, and particularly family. Um, so for me, having I lost a relative in the World Trade Center, um, seeing the ways in which 9-11 families were being kind of mobilized for empire, in particular the wars in, especially the war um, in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq. And so I just need to understand these these intersections and these roots and of U.S. imperialism. And so I actually thought I was going to be doing work on 20th century um, uh, families, um, and particularly those whose whose family members had been um, killed in what were were defined as acts of terrorism. So I was interested in the Oklahoma City bombing, Timothy McVeigh, um, and the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, um, and then going up through 9-11 and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and then I ended up taking a class with Walter Johnson on the U.S.-Mexico War and um, essentially kind of the class that led to his book, River of Dark Dreams, where I traced a footnote from Michael Rogan um, about these adoptions. And it was kind of he was talking about um, particularly Andrew Jackson's adoption of Lincoya, a young Creek boy that he um, brings home after he essentially destroys an entire village in the Upper Creek Nation during the Creek War of 1813. Um, and essentially, to me, these ado- this was a kind of lens into, you know, um, and helped me understand the deeper roots in terms of the intersections of, of U.S. imperialism, in this case, Indian country, and the ways in which ideas about family were always part and parcel of its justification, but also its deployment. And so, to me, this ended up kind of exploding my brain in terms of allowing me to see the really deep roots, um, kind of discursive roots, but also actual, um, in many ways, kind of technocratic and strategic deployments of U.S. empire and how they revolved around family. So that was my initial entree into this particular topic, um, which ended up the more I, you know, the more I kind of 
dug through the archives and understood the sources that I was reading and contextualizing them um, in American Indian and African American history, I ended up with a much more complex story than I even initially imagined. That was not only a story about U.S. empire, but um, also and especially a story about indigenous resistance um, and and the interrelations between U.S. imperialism, indigenous resistance, and racial slavery. So that's a very kind of long and um, circuitous route into, into the topic. So, Yeah, well, I think, you know, you focus on what you call adoption. And for the, the listeners here, you, you talk about adoption in a different way than I think a lot of people would, would think of it. So, so how do you define adoption in this book? Yeah, I know. That's one of those kind of tricky terms. Um, Of course, you know, the first adoption law isn't established until the 1850s in Massachusetts. And so this is long before um, adoption as in contemporary, you know, our contemporary reality is defined. Um, So it's I think of it in terms of and as I talk about in the intro to the book, in a really kind of flexible way. thinking about all the ways in which adoption is operating in this period. One, the idea um, on the part of federal elites, um, particularly folks like Henry Knox, Thomas Jefferson, but even Jackson um, at a certain particular moment, um, thinking about adoption as a, as a form of incorporation and the ways in which Indians are framed racially in, in terms of the racial paradigms at the time as adoptable into the early Republic. Um, and of course, it's not um, adoption um, correlating to kind of full-fledged citizenship. But if we think about the United States and the ways in which folks are articulating it, um, elite whites are articulating it as as a national family, right? And, and a white national family. Ind- uh, indigenous people, um, American Indian people are framed as being adoptable into this early republic, um, if not necessarily as full citizens. And this is where it's... Um, you know, I kind of trace in the arc of the book changing racial discourses, but I don't know that, you know, even in the early period, folks like Thomas Jefferson and his notes on the state of Virginia ever really, um, I mean, he even has this caveat of um, maybe, you know, potentially or probably incorporable. So um, never really kind of acknowledged as, um, you know, quote unquote, white, right, but, um, or, or um, assimilable um, into whiteness in a, in a, in the ways in which whiteness correlates with um, U.S. citizenship, um, but certainly considered adoptable into the body politic as kind of marginal subjects um, and free subjects. Um, and this is where I argue that people of African descent are never framed as adoptable as free subjects into the Republic, um, at least by the elites that I'm tracing at this time. And so um, that's where the term adoption comes from uh, on the imperial side. And of course, correlating to this adoption is the um, indigenous um, removal from ancestral territories. And so this is, um, this is the adoption, uh, you know, U.S. imperial adoption is framed around the erasure of, of um, and dismantling of indigenous sovereignty. Um, but on the, you know, on the flip side, I also see adoption in terms of the kind of selective adoption of economic um, practices um, on the part of, of American Indian nations um, that allows them to survive um, alongside and potentially within um, a an early U.S. republic that is voraciously um, claiming and um, and um, essentially expropriating indigenous land. So I see the term kind of useful on a number of levels, even though it also falls short. Um, and we can talk more about that if you're interested in terms of the ways in which, you know, it doesn't necessarily correlate to um, the ways in which indigenous children are adopted into U.S. families doesn't correlate with the ways in which indigenous people themselves understand adoption um, through the lens of kinship itself. So, so you focus on kind of white Southerners who are bringing um, 
uh, American Indian children into their families. Why, why do you focus on, on, on the South in particular? Yeah. So most of the, the early part of the book, the first second chapter traces some of the earliest adoptions I found in the archives. Um, and again, I use that term kind of flexibly and, um, you know, mindfully in terms of it's not, these are not necessarily children who are integrated into the families that take them in. Um, but the earliest ones I saw were, were actually coming uh, from communities uh, in the North and the Northeast in particular. And so that seems to be, you know, as I talk about in the second chapter, a relationship between Quakers um, and uh, Stockbridge, uh, uh, Mohican, and um, Haudenosaunee communities in the in the Northeast. But as I would kind of trace through the the archives, I really ended up finding this large group of children who are mostly residing with. Um, you know, various federal elites, including Thomas McKenney, who I write about considerably in the book, Andrew Jackson. Um, and they're mostly coming from, from the Southeast. And so this is where I kind of, through the, through the archival um, work that I did, I found most of these boys are actually being sent away by their families um, to learn the mechanics in various ways of, um, of plantation slavery. And so this is where just really in terms of where the archives led me, it led me to, to this constellation of um, relationships in this, in the Southeast. Um, and a lot of that, there's equal pressures in the, the Northeast in terms of um, displacement and removal. And, you know, I believe that those, um, the placement of children continues in the Northeast um, in various ways. But as uh, I kind of, you know, um, dug in the archives, it was this constellation in the Southeast that seemed to have the deepest impact in terms of the um, federal policy um, on the, you know, on the part of the United States in terms of how um, the justifications for Indian removal. So as I, in the end of the book, as I talk about um, these adoptions become very much a threat to the federal government in terms of Southeast Indian republics and the young men that I follow that end up in, in plant, white planter homes end up becoming um, major advocates for um, Southeast Indian sovereignty at uh, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek um, and Cherokee. And so this is a way uh, they're using their, their education in these planter homes to articulate pro-slavery, essentially, in, in not uh, universally, but largely pro-slavery independent republics in the Southeast that will live alongside and potentially even economically compete with the United States. So this is where the archives essentially led me. Um, and then this is as I was tracing through both federal records um, and records, um, you know, pertaining to the individuals who are, were you know, quote unquote, adopted by federal elites. These were these these um, what James McDonald, a, a Choctaw man that I write consider, considerably about, talks about is the paper wars that emerge over the um, course of the 1820s and 1830s that really culminate in the Indian Removal Act on the part of the federal government. Um, and so, uh, and of course, these paper wars are directly tied to economic contests that are unfolding over racial slavery in the Southeast. You know, one of the things that, that I loved about this book is that um, you bring out these amazing stories. So you cover a lot of ground, but a lot of these chapters are kind of rooted in, um, you know, individuals. They follow individuals. And one of those, you know, white Southerners that you follow is, you know, Silas Dinsmore. I mean, how, how does he, who is he and how does he fit into this, this book? Yeah, Silas Dinsmore was kind of a, a discovery for me. Um, he's been, he's, you know, he's in the historiography of Choctaw and um, Cherokee history. 
um, but mostly just kind of a name here and there. Um, and I hadn't, I haven't found anyone really up until this point who've done, who's done a deep dive into his papers. And I just was trying to learn more about James McDonald, um, who I knew had a, you know, some kind of relationship with Silas Dinsmore because Silas Dinsmore brought McDonald to Washington DC, where he ends up, uh, residing with first, uh, Baltimore Quakers and then Thomas McKinney uh, in later years. And so I knew there was a connection there. So I found Silas Dinsmore's papers on microfilm, went through them, and then I, ended up discovering kind of through him this really, um, these really powerful um, sources that, you know, once again, connect um, family, kinship, race, and sovereignty in the ways in which he was describing his um, occupation of, of Choctaw territories, his establishment of a plantation there, his relationship to indigenous people there. I don't, he never really mentions Molly McDonald, James McDonald's mother. Um, but there's a lot, a lot there that, um, that really illuminates, um, U.S. imperial um, discourse and the ways in which settlers such as Densmore, because he's certainly not unique, um, he's unique in his positionality as a Choctaw Indian agent, but he's not unique in terms of his understanding of um, and framing of a kind of settler sovereignty that is about a delegitim- uh, delegitimizing Native sovereignty, in this case specifically Choctaw sovereignty. So going through his records were, um, you know, really revealed a lot about about settler thinking to me. And it's the ways in which indigenous removal was constantly um, interconnected with racial slavery and how understandings and ideas about white families um, structured, um, structured settler understandings, both with respect to indigenous people and um, people of African descent um, differentially. Yeah, the, the other person that I probably because my knowledge of 19th century isn't that great. But I, I was so surprised that Andrew Jackson pops up into this story as someone who actually um, you know, adopted um, an American Indian child into his family. Why, why would Andrew Jackson do that? Yeah. I mean, that was the, so that was the story that brought me to the book. Um, essentially, uh, Michael Paul Rogan in his book, Fathers and Children, um, he talks about you know, Andrew Jackson invading the Creek Nation, and he takes a psychoanalytic approach, but essentially argues that this is Jackson kind of um, the Creek War, 1813, 1814 is a pivotal, as part and parcel of the War of 1812, is a pivotal um, moment for Native people um, and um, the U.S. government, U.S. settlers in the Southeast in terms of um, uh, a major circumscription of of Indigenous um, ability to fight uh, the United States through through military conflict. Um, and so the United States, of course, with um, the defeat of Great Britain, who had been, you know, tenuously and certainly um, not a steadfast ally to indigenous nations, but certainly um, what in, in critical moments um, had offered some military assistance to indigenous people um, with with um, Britain effectively um, removed and Southeast Indian armed resistance crushed in the War of 1812 from the Southeast. Um, you see, you see a kind of change in, in Native sovereignty. And so, for Rogan, he argues that this allows Jackson a kind of authority to see himself as a father to Indian people and to kind of, you know, um, really materialize that authority in real ways. He adopts Linkoya into his family from from. Um, from the Upper Creek, um, from Upper Creek country. And so for me, you know, that I, I do not disagree with Rogan's reading at all. Um, but I, I also felt like there was something else happening as well in terms of 
Jackson, you know, always the striver, always kind of um, insecure about his, I mean, I read Jackson as a deeply insecure man and always insecure about his status in the early Republic as um, a planter elite. And this is a way for him to flag to um, federal officials that he's kind of down with Jeffersonian assimilationist policy, even as he's simultaneously rewriting the map um, and changing um, federal Indian policy as part and parcel of his um, really genocidal campaign in in the, the Creek Nation. I mean, his his invasions of um, the town of his invasion of the town of Tallahassee is nothing less than um, you know a. Um, a, a wholesale slaughter of, of the women, children, and uh, largely women and children who are living there. So, um, and his soldiers are quite explicit about what happens there. And I write about it in the book. Um, you know, I, I debated um, how much of that to kind of um, put in there, just in terms of um, these are these are sensitive um, issues, and um, you know, there are there are the you know queer people. Um, to this day, this is a, uh, a really devastating moment in their history. But I also felt like it was really important to um, highlight the violence that accompanied the adoption um, to show that this is, even as Jackson is is trying to flag, and he very much writes to federal elites about his work with Lincoya. So it's clear that he wants folks to know that he's this kind of benevolent assimilator, um, but that he's also simultaneously putting his own spin on federal Indian policy, which is a um, which up to this point has certainly been characterized by warfare and violence, but Jackson, in terms of his removal policies and, and unilateralism, um, pushes it to uh, a whole other level. I mean, I say that kind of um, trepidatiously because the you know the decades prior had seen um, brutal forms of warfare and certainly um, coerced treaties, and up through the era of um, the conquest in terms of um, conquest policy, which dominates. Uh, early federal policy up through through the 1780s was nothing less than um, U.S. unilateralism. But um, Jackson does have a vision of pushing formal Indian policy in a much even more aggressive direction. And I argue that the Creek War is kind of a fusion or a, both a fusion and a transition period for, for um, Jackson. And then, of course, we see his ascendance um, over the following decades um, that really is transformative um, in many ways for federal policy. Yeah, the, the other great thing about this book is that you're able to uncover just the motivations that uh, American Indian families have in sending their children into these kind of white Southern families. And one of the most fascinating families you document is the McDonald family. And so I was wondering if you could tell listeners just who Molly McDonald was and why she would send her child James to one of these families. Yeah. I mean, that's the crazy thing. I still don't know who Molly McDonald was. I mean, there's so, <laughs> she never left any writing of her own. Um, she, it's not clear that she even knew how to, um, how to write or how much, it's not clear how much um, English she spoke. I mean, um, McDonald certainly talks about his mother's uh, trials and tribulations with the U S legal system, um, and we can get into that in a minute. Um, I'll just bracket that for a second. But in, as he does, he kind of talks about her limited, um, you know, abilities to, to kind of both in terms of legal knowledge, but also in terms of um, language and English language. Um, so 
I don't know much about her, but I try to write around the sources that I found um, to say as much as I can. So from her name um, and from some of the um, the kinship connection she has in the Choctaw Nation, Choctaw woman, um, she, it, she is likely the descendant of... Um, uh, a Euro-American trader, largely uh, probably Scotch-Irish, Irish, um, who had settled in the the Choctaw Nation at some point, likely in the 1770s, um, 17 early 1780s, perhaps. Um, and it was really common for um, Native women to marry um, uh, European traders as part and parcel of the kinship connections that. Um, indigenous people kind of mandated for, to to regulate trade within Indian country. So this was a way in which um, prominent chiefs could control um, trade connections themselves by tying traders to their own families, but it was also a way to hold traders accountable to um, Native communities through intermarriage. And so it's unclear if MacDonald herself, Molly MacDonald, is a descendant of a European trader um, and a Choctaw woman, or if she herself, um, you know, married a European trader and that's where her name came from. So I speculate about that in the book. We don't know anything really about her ancestry. We do know though that she, from her, her connections that she was um, related to certainly related to elite um, Choctaw chiefs. Um, So she has kinship connections that, that really position her in an important way within the Choctaw nation. Um, Choctaw um, leadership roles are, are, um, were uh, typically emerged out of um, particular family connections, um, kinship ties, um, and then um, various, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, Merit-based, um, you know, achievements. So through hunting, mm-hmm. warfare, diplomacy, etc. So this is um, this is where we don't know much about Molly McDonald, but it's clear that she has these kinds of really important connections. And then we do know she married, she married three white men over the course of her, the course of her life. Um, and most likely, um, most likely traders who are, um, you know, intermarrying in order to establish these trade connections with elite Choctaw families. So that is, you know, what I speculate about her and, you know, in relationship to her, her kinship ties. Um, and I had help with, um, with genealogists um, who have done, you know, uh, Choctaw, genealogists, Choctaw genealogists who've done um, incredible work um, in in this field. Um, so I am completely indebted. Um, Jennifer Myers in, in particular has done amazing work around this family and then the families that are connected to it um, at this time. And so, so through that and through her name um, and through her later connections with Silas Dinsmore, I speculate that she's someone who has considerable authority within um, her region of the Choctaw Nation. Um, so I do know at a certain point, she also holds um, people of African descent as slaves. Um, the first uh, inkling I had of this was a letter that her son wrote in 1824, uh, demanding that the federal government compensate her for the price of um, an enslaved man of African descent who was stolen, you know, quote unquote, stolen from her. I use stolen in quotes because obviously um, this is a, this is a, um, a structural fabrication that he doesn't own his own body, but um, he is, is sold to her by these white traders. And then they essentially come and, um, after she's paid, according to James McDonald, seven eighths of his price, they come and essentially take him 
uh, quote unquote, steal him back from her. Uh, and she's left with no abilities to uh, petition to um, any of the state courts for um, compensation or redress because she, as a Native woman and as just a Native person, she's not allowed to testify in court. Um, these men have absconded from the nation. They're gone. So this is the first inkling that I, I had that she was holding people of African descent in bondage. And then I found other records that show that she has, um, that she essentially runs a cattle business and um, is growing cotton through the labor of, of um, enslaved African-Americans. So this is, this is really, these were the sources of small handful of sources that I found about her um, that, um, that kind of opened this whole window into um, these adoptions, into um, the relationships between um, some of the native families and the um, federal officials who are, um, you know, adopting Southeast Indian boys. Um, And then of course, James McDonald's history as well, being her son. Yeah, I mean, James is such a fascinating figure in this book. I mean, Molly McDonald sends James to live with uh, a white Southerner, Silas Dinsmore. And you write about, you know, how um, American Indian families see adoption as, and through this kind of form of resistance, as, as, as they have a lot of optimism about adoption. And so I'm wondering, you know, if you could kind of explain what James Dinsmore actually does and how he kind of represents this effort to use adoption as um, a form of resistance. Yeah. So James McDonald, he, um, you know, I speculate that he, you know, is somewhere probably around, you know, 10 or 11 when he starts this process of entering into, um, white homes and it, you know, seeing it, it's, it's hard to say, you know, it certainly is a form of optimism on one level. You know, I also wonder how much of it is, um, a form of kind of, um, you know, strategy. So, um, and in some ways, you know, one that's, that's always a gamble. So, um, you know, what does it mean to place your child in, in someone's home where you really have very, very little control or say over what's, what their daily life is like, or ultimately what's going to happen to them? Um, so I just, I don't know. Um, I don't know what Molly's relationship was with her son, but, um, and I don't want to essentialize um, motherhood on any level, um, but it is, you know, knowing the history of, um, you know, kinship relationships in, in the Choctaw Nation in particular, and thinking about um, the ways in which mothers had ultimate say, you know, mothers and uncles, but certainly mothers um, had a huge um, deal of say over their children and potentially even the ultimate say over what happened to their children, um, at least in a, um, you know, by and large in terms of the ways in which kinship um, and gender were, um, you know, understood, um, within those communities that, um, you know, it's powerful to think to, to, that you're going to be transferring your child to someone else's care and, and, um, ultimately have some hope, trust, and faith that that's going to work out. Um, so, and I really, in the book, try to talk a lot about the structural conditions that make this, um, that make this a, um, an important strategic choice for, for native families at this moment. Um, so, you know, you have increasingly aggressive, um, U S federal policies vis-a-vis Indian people. You have a changing economic, um, uh, changing economic setting where you have European traders and European empires, um, either removing themselves or being removed by the United States from, you know, much of, um, you know, the Southeast and, you know, lower North American continent. Um, so this 
makes the United States the large, kind of the major economic um, game in town in terms of trade networks. And then also the U.S. Um, federal government through the federal factory system, and Thomas Jefferson is explicit about this, um, is oriented around doing everything it can to get indigenous nations indebted to the United States government and using that debt to um, demand land sessions. Um, and so you have these changing economic conditions um, and structural conditions that make placement in U.S. families a very um, a strategic choice that, you know, for some families um, seemed a viable one for training their sons in a, in a new economic system. And this is where, for Molly McDonald, I argue that that system is directly related to um, the system of plantation and chattel slavery. Um, so there is a certain amount of, I guess, as you, you know, to use your word optimism there, that that's going to work out. Um, but I also really throughout the book wanted to frame the violence that's related to that choice. And so for someone like Molly McDonald, who's holding um, black people in bondage, there's the ongoing violence of chattel slavery, which, you know, um, folks as early as Equiano talk about as an ongoing form of warfare. So you have these kind of internal wars within the households, both um, white and native, if we're thinking about slaveholding households. Um, and then also the forms of warfare that I want to think about in terms of throughout the book, in terms of um, the kind of warfare that gets waged through assimilation vis-a-vis indigenous people. So white households becoming these spaces of warfare that are not only about, um, uh, that are not only about racial slavery, but that are also about, um, Indian removal. Um, and this is a form of economic warfare and warfare waged through the politics of kinship. So I guess that's a long, long answer to the, to the optimism question, but, um, I just, it's, it's true. There is a kind of optimism that revolves around new economic systems, but it's also, um, so deeply rooted in violence that it's, um, certainly has, um, you know, again, these are strategic gambles on the part of Native families and then in of themselves are tied to these um, colonial systems that are, that are, um, that are, uh, I guess, you know, that are deeply tragic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, c- certainly their, their choices are very limited <laughs> in, in, in terms of uh, the strategies they can employ. But, but the, the the last chapter um, of this book is 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 really wonderful, where you talk about you know adoption kind of unraveling um, a bit as as kind of a, a strategy, right? And, and that adoption really doesn't work out the way that Southern whites and Indian families had really hoped that it, that it would. And so I was wondering if you could kind of explain you know how this um, that you use adoption to kind of help explain the turn to policies of, of Indian removal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was actually, as I was finishing my dissertation, um, that was a, um, a question uh, I believe Neil Salisbury had for me is, you know, what is, what are federal policy makers saying around these adoptions at a certain point? What are we seeing in terms of congressional debates around any removal? And I was like, wow, that's a, fabulous and important question. So that led to my deep dive into the, um, uh, the debates around removal, which, um, if you go into the congressional records, they're, um, uh, euphemistically entitled Indian emigration. Um, so of course erasing, um, the history of, um, violence and as making it sound, you know, almost voluntary. Right. Um, and so I went into, into those congressional records and I saw that there was you know, the, the kind of, if not, I mean, certainly the term adoption emerges, but there's also, I mean, surrounding the debates were these questions of, you know, assimilation, assimilability, um, 
and both pro and anti removers are are you know deeply um, deeply tied to this question: Are Native people assimilable into the early U.S. Republic? Um, and so, of course, um, it's an imperial question <laughs> at its root for both. Um, pro-removal folks and those who are opposing removal in terms of, you know, it becomes about native assimilability rather than um, ongoing imperial occupation of Indian lands. Um, And so when I was looking at these congressional debates, you know, for those who were um, focusing on um, and pushing forward, you know, Jackson's Indian removal policies, they were arguing that these young men who had been, you know, educated um, and schooled in these white households were working against their own Indian nations and essentially arguing that they were kind of native usurpers, that that they were actually not even native at all. Um, And that through their, um, many of them were descended like James McDonald from native women and white traders. So they were arguing that that they they were not truly Indian at all um, in terms of their ancestry. And of course, um, this is uh, related to various um, racial paradigms on the part of um, federal elites who understand strategically and importantly, indigeneity at this point, um, this notion of the quote unquote full blood comes up um, a lot. And they refer to the, those who have been adopted as quote, quote unquote um, half breeds and using a very, a term that um, uh, as I talk about in the book is, is, um, of course, one that is tied to all kinds of notions of, of race um, and degradation in terms of um, indigenous ancestry. So um, they very strategically configure these adoptees as not necessarily Indian, um, but rather um, these kind of all of a sudden they become white. They become these white. They become white only when it serves Indian removal. They become these white usurpers of indigenous um, indigenous governments in the Southeast and are understood as essentially um, working against, you know, quote unquote, real Indians who um, would be best served by by removal um, west of the Mississippi. Um, and so they bring up their adoptions, they bring up their um, formal schooling in the United States, they bring up their ancestry to essentially argue that, um, and imply that real indigeneity um, is linked to very different economic practices and these young men are performing, these young men are largely supporting um, pro-slavery Southeast Indian republics. Um, And so they argue that quote unquote, real Indians wouldn't be supporting these kinds of economic systems. And that um, in many ways implying that real Indians didn't have the kind of um, quote unquote capacity to engage in these kinds of economic systems. So really uh, engaging in deeply racialized discourse that, that correlates. And other folks have talked a lot about this. I'm thinking of um, Philip Deloria's work, um, Gene O'Brien's work, where they talk about how essentially um, the understanding that on the part of, um, you know, white imperialists that Indians can never really be modern. Um, And so they're, they're engaging with this racialized discourse to imply that these adopted young men are essentially um, again, not truly Indian and are because they're in, uh, entering the ranks of leadership positions in their nations and really advocating for tribal sovereignty. Um, they, um, you know, are not truly Indian and, and must be um, kind of sidestepped, deposed or worked against to support real Indian interests, which is for 
um, according to them, would be best served by removal. So this is where you see them arguing that Indians essentially aren't at this point adoptable into the early republic and, you know, to them, quote unquote, you know, real Indians. And this is where they're, again, engaging in um, very dubious and strategic racial discourse um, and that they must be removed uh, most of the Mississippi where they should um, reside until the United States deems them assimilable into the early republic. And that's where the story kind of um you know, takes up after my book ends in terms of those histories. I end really with um, the Indian Removal Act. Um, there's a long story that continues after that. Um, and then for, you know, those who are um, opposing removal, they are emphasizing um, the the economic practices that these young adoptees are um engaging with and, 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 you know, picking up on the long history, racialized history of quote unquote civilization, which correlates to a particular notion of nuclear household, um, capitalism, um, land ownership, uh, male headed agriculturalism. And they're arguing that um, these young men who have been circulating through the United States show all the signs of quote unquote civilization and therefore are assimilable. And so are they opposing removal through this assimilation paradigm. So um, again, I, you know, they're both imperial tropes, um, one opposing removal um, and one supporting it. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful final chapter. And I'm glad that you, glad that your advisor or one of your committee members put, so you put it in there. Um, Don Peterson, thank you so much for, for joining me uh, today. It's a wonderful book. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, The book is titled Indians in the Family, Adoption and the Politics of Antebellum Expansion. Thank you very much for listening today. 